Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. Hey, everyone. Um, can you believe it's the end of 2023? Where does the time go? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I hope you had a wonderful year. Um, I hope you're looking forward to a fresh start in 2024. I'm wondering, you know, as we wrap up this year being in the holiday season, what are your favorites? I was this time of year to me feels so cozy. Living in the Pacific Northwest, it's, it can get kind of dark and rainy outside. So I always find some of my favorite rituals around the holidays are of course, decorating the lights, uh, lighting a fire, lighting some candles, and just getting cozy with a really good book. And oh my gosh, if you need recommendations for good books, well, you've come to the right place because every single one of our authors this past year has just been phenomenal. And, you know, I'm looking forward to 2024 because we already have a stellar lineup. We have some favorites that are coming back to visit us. We're going to kick off the year with Katie Silcox. And Wade from Optimizers is just like, oh, he's like a sage. I can't wait to talk to him again. Rosie, of course, is going to be dropping in now and then to join us. And it's just such an honor to be able to host this podcast and to have you along for the ride. So I hope you've been enjoying it. And um, thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting us. And please come back in the new year. We're just going to take a couple weeks break a much needed rest. <laughs> and then we're going to kick off the new year strong. We'll be back on January 5th. So be well, everyone. We love you so, so much. Happy holidays. Take care of yourselves. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Radically Love podcast. We are back with an amazing guest. We have Kemi Nekfapil on the podcast today. We are so excited to have her here. She is a leading credential coach for female executives and entrepreneurs and a best-selling author. She has a new book out. It's called Power, A Woman's Guide to Living and Leading Without Apology. Um, this is such an incredible book. It really draws on her own personal story. And um, I mean, you have, you have to pick it up and, and I, I'm not going to give you any spoiler alerts unless Kemi wants to share those stories, but also a facilitator for the hunger project, Australia. And she's also the host of audible original podcast power talks. Um, and so Kemi is joining us from Australia today. Welcome to the show. How are you? I am good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're honored. We're very honored to have you. Ah. Uh, it's like where to start. So, so much good stuff in this book. And I identified with so many of the stories. I also love that you included a lot of um, other voices in your work. Um, and so I want, there's, there's some themes I want to pull on, obviously power. And I love the way that this is set up as an acronym. So I guess let's start there. 
What does the acronym POWER stand for? Well, I knew that I had to redefine power because I think for many of us, especially women, there is one particular form of power that we have engaged with and none of us really want that for ourselves. The kind of model of power over if I have power, you can't have it. I will do anything I can to keep it. And yet we have had incredible power since time memoriam. I believe it's why, you know, women were burnt at the stake, basically, because we have a form of power that can threaten certain systems. Um, so I knew I had to redefine power. I first of all went to the Oxford Dictionary, to be honest, because you can hear that I'm English, although I have lived in Australia for 20 years. And so the Oxford Dictionary definition of power is the ability or capacity to do something in a particular way. And so that really solidified for me, ah, oh, so this one form of power that we have been exposed to, that we know of, that we see playing out in the world right now in horrendous ways, is just one form of power, but it is not the entirety of power. And so for me, I wanted to break power down and redefine it. So P stands for presence. R, P <laughs> is for presence. O is for ownership. W is for wisdom. E is for equality. And R is for responsibility. And by stepping into each of what I call the power principles, we get to own and claim a power that comes from the internal resources with inside, regardless of the external, you know, titles that we may be given in work, in life, the roles that we get to play. It's actually a form of power that it can get taken away from us, you know, all the time. Or we're smart as women. Sometimes we give it away because that is the safest thing to do. And yet, how do we learn to rebuild our sense of power in those moments? Yeah. Giving power away, that was such a, that was a huge takeaway. It reminds me of this, well, you're, you're talking about presence, Meredith's story. Um, mm. A little excerpt from there that has stuck with me. I've been thinking about this ever since I read it. And I'd really like to invite uh, listeners to ask this question in their daily life. I'm certainly going to start doing it now, but it's the, why am I choosing to do this? And this is around the context of, uh, well, what Meredith was saying, what, what Kemi wrote, I enjoy feeling accomplished and contributing to a greater good. And I also love working hard and being rewarded for my efforts, which is like you're saying, that's all okay. Right. But the emphasis Meredith was putting into these endeavors was at the cost of her real sense of worth. Um, and she writes, I was yet to feel the sense of calm and self-assurance I was sure existed for me. And then I, I'm just paraphrasing here uh, the quote, why am I choosing to do this question mark by creating a habit of asking this question? I started to notice my patterns of behavior, particularly where I was choosing to please others to my own detriment. And oh my God, I think we could hear a collective echo of women being like, yep check done that been there and I think this one simple question is it creates enough space at least for me it, to pause and check in and to to really notice the should you know is this a should is this external validation or is this really filling me up in some way um yeah 100% and so Meredith is one of the 14 women that I, you know, asked to contribute to the book. These are all women that I have worked with as an executive and personal coach. And I think Meredith's story comes under presence, doesn't it? And it's taking that time to reflect and understand 
why am I doing what I am doing? And to be really honest with ourselves about why we say yes to the things that we say yes to. Um, why do we say no to the things that we say no to? Although, to be honest, in my experience, most women are working out how to say yes less and no more. So the issue isn't so much around why I say no. It's more why do I say yes? Is it because you know, it, there's a power in me showing up with my skills and my talents in this area? Or is it because I want to be liked? Is it because I'm scared of rejection? Is it because my sense of worth is in my doing and not my being? And the reality is, is that most of us have been raised to believe as women that our worth comes from our doing. Mm -hmm. And so to say no, or to say that doesn't work for me, we then have to find other ways of identifying what our worth is and what our value is, not only to other people, but more importantly to ourselves, because then we can give sustainably. Then we can give without feeling resentful and angry and overwhelmed um, and kind of silently planning revenge, maybe as we're doing the dishes or all the things that we might be doing. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't do that. Which isn't powerful. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It feels powerful in the moment as you're creating your revenge stories, but actually, you know, it's that sense of they are doing this to me. And that's kind of what I talk about in the power principle responsibility. This idea of there is so much power in taking responsibility. And obviously I'm not talking about abuse or anything like that, but even in that chapter, I speak about for those of us that have experienced abuse in whatever way that is that the perpetrators are generally not going to apologize and they are not responsible for our healing. They're responsible mm -hmm. for our wounding. So then we have to take responsibility for our healing. Um, and that is one of the biggest gifts that we can give to ourselves. Yeah. And, and in that context, I, I often wonder about, you know, there are some cases where abuse you you definitely don't want to make contact with the abuser and your healing really is in your own hands. If someone feels the need to have some sort of reconciliation with the person who has done harm, uh, would, would there be any advice you would give? No, not at all. No, I would not give advice about that. One, because I'm a coach and so it's not my job to give advice. It's my job to share stories ask questions and mirror back. Mm -hmm. And everyone has their own unique scars and wounding. You know, that is definitely something that someone would, would need to speak to a, a therapist, a trained therapist about, because every single person's journey to healing is different. And we only heal when we're ready. And for some people, part of that healing is putting kind of responsibility in the perpetrator's hands for a while. You know, that sometimes that's how we move through. And then we realize this isn't working. This isn't working to keep marinating in what happened. Do I have the internal and external resources to do something about that? Because not everyone does have the internal and external resources to do something about that. So I definitely would not want to step into that, um, into that area and, some, and unintentionally diminish someone's power in that way. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So you, at the beginning of the book, you leave with a powerful um, reason, the passion, the vision for this book. Um, it's around the power of the mother. I was wondering if you would share a little bit of that story. 
Yeah, actually, it's, it's yeah, I, I will share that story. I'd love to and actually have just confirmed that I'm going back to that place um, at the end of this year. So um, just before the world closed down in 2020, my husband and I and our two teenagers went to Kerala to South India with a couple of friends. And I trained as a yoga teacher 30 years ago in Kerala. So I love South India. But we were there with some friends and they said, you know, have you heard of this place called the Matramandia? Now, the Matramandia is a hard place to actually describe, but it is the vision of a woman called the mother. Her name was Mira Fassa, and she was a young girl in Europe who kept dreaming, sort of in her words, kept dreaming of a brown man. And this brown man actually ended up becoming her mentor. It was Sri Arabindu. And the mother started this beautiful community called Auroville in Pondicherry in southern India. And she had this vision of birthing this kind of consciousness into the world. And that vision is architecturally this massive, like it's hard to describe it. And even in my describing of it, I know that I'm doing it a disservice. But it imagine like a massive golden ball in the middle of a green lawn. Like it's hard to understand, you know, it's hard to explain. But off of this ball or within this ball are meditation chambers that are shaped like petals. So on our trip to India, our friend said, you have to go and see the Matramandia. And I just had this sense, you know, I've had a yoga practice and a meditation practice for 30 years now. And I had a very clear sense of you are meant to go and see this place and sense this place on your own. So my husband and family and our friends were kind of behind and I was kind of rushing ahead, waiting to see this thing. I just knew there's a message. And when I got there, there was this one seat. There were some other tourists there, but there was this one seat and I knew that's my seat. And I felt like I was being led. Do you know when you really are present and you can just go with what you're being called to do? And I sat there and I closed my eyes and I meditated and I just knew there was a message. And I start the book with this story kind of in more detail and what I got in that message. But it was very much a sense of if the mother can birth this vision into the world, of this, you know, European woman that came to work and be, you know, an equal with this Indian man to create this beautiful community and then build this incredible meditation and this physical, tangible representation of a new consciousness in the world. Maybe you're the person to write and redefine what power can be in the world. And, you know, that we all, whether or not we're mothers as women, and one of the things I love in the work that I do is that when I used to you know, run retreats or hold groups or speak to audiences, I would ask women, you know, who in the room are parents, who wants to be a parent and who doesn't want to be a parent. And, you know, 15 years ago, the women that wanted, didn't want to be a parent, felt shy, felt shame, felt guilt about that. And now what's amazing, I'll ask those questions. because I like to know who's in the audience and the women that don't want to be mothers, they just throw their hands up. They're just like, yep, yeah, nah, not for me. You know, and that sense of power and ownership that I talk about in the second part, I'm just saying, that's not my path. That's not what I want. And there is a different experience for women now in really choosing how do we want to contribute to the world? How do we want to mother in the world? That's got nothing to do with whether we're birthing children. It's about what do I want to birth into the world as who I am in my full power. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I'd be that woman in the audience. Nope. Don't want to have kids. Yeah. Don't want to have kids. Yeah. Got other things to do with my time. Yeah. Yeah. We do have a, a nephew who lives with us and it's really, it's really, it was interesting to take him in as a 15 year old having 
you know, he, he had his childhood and his infancy. He was parented by his grandparents and then we took him in when he was 15 and now. So it's really fun to see him grow up and be the person who he is. <laughs> well, it's inter- well, it's interesting because, you know, as you know from reading the book, I was a foster child. So I had five different families growing up and I landed with my final set of foster parents when I was 14. So when I hear that you've taken on your nephew at four, I'm just like, you said it's fun. I'm like, really? Isn't that code for being in the absolute roller coaster ride of being, you know, parent? I know that I was not pleasant um, when I arrived at 14 because I was very much, yeah, I was very much testing. I had experienced not being in my power, yeah. not having an idea of who my parents were going to be. Um, as a black woman navigating a, a white world all the time and growing up in 1970s England where very much the message was, which I 100% inhaled and believe, which is you are black, which means that you are less than, you are not worthy. And so I spent a lot of time being a good girl and being a good black girl. How do I get to stay in these places that I'm told I don't belong? How do I get accepted? How do I, how do I survive? You know, and so what I did was I put on this kind of character of being good all the time. But what I realized over time was, oh, I may be physically in rooms, but I'm actually not there. Mm. Because my experience was, if I have an opinion, if I rock the boat, if I am too much, whatever that means, then I will be cast out of this family, or I'll be cast out of this room. And none of us want to be cast out of places. Um, And so for me, and then for me being a mum now of teenagers, although I have a 19-year-old who, who's left home and a 17-year-old who's still in the home, and I think once they get to 17, things change a little bit. But I can definitely say the ages of around 14, 15 and 16, I had to constantly look at what does power look and feel like when you're mothering teenagers and wanting to honour that really challenging journey And when do you give your power away and when do you ignite their power and what does that look like? And that, that, you know, that takes something. It takes a lot of snacks. That's what it takes. A lot of refueling. Yeah. Yeah. That's I really love that. It takes a lot of snacks. (laughs) Yeah. You're snacks and naps. How you do it. (laughs) Naps. Yeah, no, it's, that's true. It it is. um, Rosie and I have talked a lot on this podcast about what it's been like to to inherit a 15 year old and yes there have been ups and downs um yeah and and I think you know I wonder about from from your experience when you landed in that last foster home what what was different about it and why Mm. did that stick and was it more kind was it more loving was it something your foster parents said or did differently that I don't know. Was it different at all? Yeah, I can I can answer that question. So I also need to give the context, which kind of goes to the power principle of ownership, because I realize that if I don't share the whole story, we as human beings make up stories and fill in the gaps. So I was one of tens of thousands of Nigerian children born to middle class parents who wanted their children to have the best education they could. And because of the colonial narrative, which we all know, I think a lot of us are spending our times decolonizing our minds. um, They believed that the English education was the best education because that's what the English told them. And Mm -hmm. so that meant that tens of thousands of Nigerian children were fostered to white parents in the 1960s, 70s and 80s. So my first foster parents were incredible. I had three older 
um, foster sisters and it was a really beautiful, beautiful home to be in. And then the foster parents in between there were kind of, some were not great, some were not so, you know, some were great, some were not so great, some was awful. Now, my first foster parents had kitchen gardens. So there's going to be a, there's going to be a, this will tie into my last foster parents. So I grew up with gardening. I grew up in Kent in England. I grew up around farms and I grew up around paddocks. I grew up around space. When I arrived with my social work at my last foster parents, it was spring. And when I got there, they were, they were in their kitchen garden and they were making jam on the stove. And I remember walking into that home and I look back now, like at the time I didn't know, but this sense of safety because I'd felt so safe with my first foster parents that suddenly I walked into this home where there were spring blossoms and they were in the garden and they were making jam. And it took me a while because when you come from, you know, when you come from an insecure childhood, it takes a while for your nervous system to settle. But I do remember being asked to stir the jam pot and just having a sense of maybe I'm going to be safe here because the foster family directly before that was the most abusive and neglectful foster family that I had been in. So it took a while for me to trust my last foster parents. Um, but I you know very much do. They're what my kids, you know, they're my kids' grandparents and my birth mother is still in my life. My, my birth father died many, many years ago, but you know, I have a relationship with my birth mother. We have a great relationship. Um, and also, you know, my last foster family and my first foster parents are still in my life, you know, so that's mm. pretty incredible. And now we just swap gardening stories and things. Um, but yeah, it was definitely different. And I was given choice in that final foster home that I had never been given before and kind of, what do you want to do? Like my foster mum was a careers teacher. So suddenly I was being asked questions instead of me surviving my life. I was being asked, so like, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? What do you want to do after school? What do you want to? And that was a really new experience for me. And that was, you know, that was the beginning of me starting to stand in my power, not the end, but like, wow, I get a say in my life. You're asking me to actually make choices about my own life. Very, very powerful questions. Mm. Wow, I love that. Thank you for sharing. I wanted to, this, this, um, in terms of being asked what you want, there's, you, you speak to leading and living, and I experienced this too as a woman, as an apology, and, and you, you really unpack that. Um, I was wondering if you would speak to just that subject here, leading and living as an apology. Mm. So as I shared, because of how I grew up and because I grew up in England and because I'm black and I just felt I was an apology all the time. And I was told that I was an apology and I was physically harmed and I experienced racism and still, I mean, I experienced racism like two weeks ago that had me in tears. And that's why for me, this journey of power is not a linear thing. It's we are going to be in and out of our power all of the time. It's how do we rebuild ourselves when we give it away or when it's knocked out of us. Mm. Um, but definitely for me, it's looking at how do we, wh where are we saying sorry about ourselves? You know, we were told that we were too much as a child. So how does that show up in our adult adulthood? For those of us that are either given the title as a leader or we know that we're leaders because we are living a life. And especially those of us that are parents, our kids are watching us. You know, they're watching who are they being, not what are they, not what are they telling me, but who are they being? And so, 
you know, I just all the time would just diminish who I was. I would diminish my intentions. And I, because I grew up as a survivor of my situation, I didn't grow up with dreams. You know, I talk about that's why my wedding dress was so hideous. I mean, oh my gosh, like I think I've managed to destroy every single wedding picture um, because I didn't grow up as a young girl that dreamt of what my wedding dress would be. That was not the space. I didn't grow up thinking about who I would be. I was just, am I emotionally, physically safe in this space? What do I need to do every day to get through the day? So for me, living as an apology was just something that I inherited but then what it is now as a woman in midlife to take full ownership of my stories of who I am, to trust my wisdom, to know that I actually am equal to every other human being in the planet. Obviously, I have less resources, external resources than some people, and I have considerably more external resources than some people. But my humanity is equal. That is something I have had to learn over a very, very long time. And I think as women, we have to understand, you know, the macro story that we're told is mm -hmm. that we are unequal. And some of us may not have been told that in our families. Like, I'm really clear of that. I actually met a woman the other day who said to me, I've always felt powerful. Mm -hmm. I've never felt powerless in my life ever. And I said, wow, that's amazing. Like, tell me, how does that happen? You know? And she just said, it was actually my dad. My dad was a man that really elevated my power and who I was and didn't just say you can do whatever you want but took her into situations all the time where she would be the only little girl or would be the only young woman in that space and so she knew how to operate within the patriarchal mm -hmm. system that wasn't as an apology like thank you for having me here and I don't want to use my voice but the complete opposite but I've probably I've met three people three women that have said that their power has never been an issue for them that they've just felt 100% in who they are for their whole lives which is awesome which is great but I do know that's not the majority's experience and so I think that's another great question is like where do I diminish myself with whom do I diminish myself for how long have I been doing it what is the impact on me you know, and what is the impact on me? And I think, not I think, I know, because that's one way we do it as well. You'll know from the book is that we do it in our language. We mm -hmm. say, I think, instead of when we know. So that was me, you know, it's an unlearning all the time. It's a practice. But I know that the awareness of when and why we give our power away is always the beginning. Sometimes it's not about action straight away. It's just sitting with the awareness of, you know, and I share stories in the book. There's a woman there who gives her power away to her parents. She's, you know, she was in her 40s. And every time she went home, her dad would comment on her weight and her mum would comment about why she didn't have a baby yet. And in our work together, although she came to me about leadership coaching, what actually revealed itself was that she had no power in her origin family at all. And she had played the good girl and she'd never said to her dad, it is not okay for you to comment about my weight. You know, but in the work that we did, she decided to actually, you know, use her voice and say this is not okay um and it was a really beautiful it was really beautiful to lot to walk alongside her as she stepped into her power in a respectful way you know that she then created an incredible relationship of equality with her parents where as a four-year-old woman she wasn't actually showing up as a as an 11 year old you spoke to this already that this work exists. It's not linear, right? It exists mm -hmm. on a continuum. It's going to mm -hmm. feel like, oh, I've got it. And then it's going to feel like, oh, I don't, I don't got it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking about this story you just shared in terms of someone who, who grows up in an environment where they 
literally have no power. They may, maybe don't even have a mentor to look to, to, to model that behavior after. Um, and I'm wondering that process of, I just, I just think about how fear might hold someone back for their whole life. And is it, is it a simple process that we make really hard because fear gets in the way of taking that leap of stepping? And there's this quote, um, we must believe when we walk to the edge of all of the light that we cannot see, we must believe that one of two things will happen. We will um, learn to see in the dark or some will, someone will be there to catch us when we fall. And so mm -hmm. I think about that in terms of like this client that you're describing working with taking that leap into doing that scary thing and speaking up for herself within her family dynamic. Mm. How does that journey unfold? And I know it's got to be nuanced and it's different for mm -hmm. everyone, but I don't know if that you can, can you answer that question? Yeah, I, I can. And it's actually, um, it's something that kind of Liz Gilbert talks about. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about in that you kind of have to get sick of your own bullshit you know you kind of have to so this particular client she loved her parents but she was avoiding going and visiting them mm. because she didn't want to be asked the questions so the impact on her the cost was that these people that she loved she was kind of moving out of her life because she couldn't be with how those questions made her feel about herself and what she wanted was to have more connection and so sometimes we just have to you know we've all we've all been in those situations where we're watching friends relationships and we know that their partner like it's just like you know what it's not kind of, but we all know hopefully we're all old enough to now know no one is going to leave anyone until they're ready to do it no one is going to make the changes in their lives until they're ready to do it and all we can do is just you know if we're a friend or family member is to just hold them in their equality know that it's their journey not ours as in like stop trying to change them because none of us like being changed and feeling mm -hmm. like there's something wrong with us and that we're broken, that we need to be fixed. Um, but that people make the change when they're ready. Sometimes part of the process is to get really sick of your own bullshit or for it to really, really hurt. And another thing that we know as a fact is that, especially when it comes to burnout and women resting and saying no, it's that our body will take us out. You know, it's like we can keep going and that becomes the cost. It's like the body will be like, Do you know what? I know what you need and I know that you're not going to give it to yourself. So I'm going to take you out and then you're going to have to face the thing that you haven't been willing to face. My hope is that it doesn't get to that point. But also for some of us, it needs to get to that point. You know, that's part of being human. We have to go on our own journeys and experience what we need to experience to make the shift and the changes that we want. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a nice reminder. I have heard Elizabeth Gilbert talk about that. That was a good reminder. Uh, one last question. I do want to know what you hope our readers take away from reading the book Power. And if you want to pull out one thread from this conversation as well, is there something you hope they take away? From? Yes. I. What I would love for listeners and, and anyone that thinks that the book is going to you know, really serve them for the season of life that they're in right now, whether that's work, personal, is that if you feel that you are not enough, you're not good enough, you're not worthy enough, you're not smart enough, it's not always about you as the individual. We have grown up in systems that have made many of us feel that we're not good enough, not worthy enough, not smart enough. 
and those systems are patriarchy and racism and homophobia and transphobia and all of these systems that tell us that only one particular group of humans is of worth. And we know that group. I'm married to a member of that group. That is the white, Christian, able-bodied, middle-class male. And that patriarchy affects them too. You know, patriarchy doesn't serve men either. It only, it takes their power away in the terms of that they're not allowed to have the power of their wisdom and their emotion. And, you know, there are so many things that men don't gain from patriarchy. It is a system. It's not a person. And so for anyone that wants to read the book, just know that your experience of yourself isn't just about you, that we have all been raised, whether it's in our families or in our societies, that as women or those of us that identify as women, that there's something wrong with us and that we're broken. And so the book is a guide. It's not a 21 days to power. As I've shared with you, I was crying in a bathroom in a public space because of a racist incident that I had. And yet I now have, no, I now have the tools to rebuild my power. Um, and that's what I hope this book can give. You know, we'll give it away sometimes because we're smart. It'll get taken away sometimes because the world that we live in, but there's power in knowing that we have it and we can rebuild it for ourselves time and time again. Kemi, it's been such a pleasure. I cannot wait for everyone to get their hands on your book and to listen to this podcast. Is there any place on the socials that you like to point people to best? I'll make sure that everything gets into the show notes links. Yeah, thank you. Um, People can find me on Instagram and people can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I hang out. Cool. We will catch you over there. (laughs) Thank you. Lovely to speak with you, Tess. Take care. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com.